atoning sacrifice, keeper of this life. Hallelujah, you are Savior, beginning and the end, forgiver of my sin. By your mercy, you have saved Who are those? 
Father, to you alone belongs the highest praise. And we've come today to offer to you our praise and to gather in this place to worship you, to learn of you, to to connect our lives to each other through your spirit. We know that you're here and we pray for your blessing on all that we do in our worship time this morning. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. As we come together uh, back from all the places we may have gone this summer and we sort of begin to move toward our regular routine, sometimes we're thinking it would be nice to have opportunities to connect with each other, uh, to connect with people maybe we haven't seen, don't get the opportunity to visit, share our lives with. Over the next two Sunday nights, next Sunday night and the week following, we have a couple of gatherings in the evening that give us the opportunity to do that. Next Sunday night is a potluck dinner, and we are welcoming all of the students who are on campus early. It's a great opportunity to meet some students, also to connect with each other, and you see information in the bulletin about that. And then the following Sunday night, uh, we'll have a dessert gathering, uh, an opportunity to meet particularly people who are new to the community, though we want to do that next week as well. But uh, there are people who will be coming in over the course of the next few weeks And it's an opportunity to connect as well with them. So you see information in the bulletin about both of those events. And we hope you'll be a part of those gatherings uh, here at the church. Notice next Sunday we again meet for for worship uh, 940 and 11. And then on the 31st we go to our full schedule of three services. And Sunday school begins that day as well. We are particularly thinking uh, this morning about things going on in the world. Uh, We recognize that... uh, our, our lives are connected to people throughout the world. And we're thinking about the persecuted church and Christians, particularly in Iraq, who are facing great difficulty. Many of them are um, becoming refugees because of the violence there. And we want to pray for them, pray for uh, the church there and all the people who are affected by uh, the violence. We also want to pray for uh, Margie Doty as she uh, moves to a new ministry with Wycliffe Bible Translators. We've supported the Dodies for many years, and we want to pray for her. And there are also other needs that are connected to us as a congregation that we continue to remember in our prayers as well. Uh, it's always exciting to, when we come together to have the opportunity to uh, dedicate our children to God. And this morning we have the opportunity to do that once again. So I'm going to ask uh, the Sanctus to come here to the front and join me. Suli and Kristen, you have brought this child whom God has given you to be dedicated to God and to his service. By this act, you signify your own faith in Jesus Christ and your desire that she receive the benefits of dedication to God and the prayers of the church and may early learn to know and follow the will of God. 
and thus doing may live and die a Christian, attaining in the end of this earthly life to everlasting life in the kingdom of God. In order that this may be accomplished, it will be your duty as parents to teach your child early the fear of the Lord, to watch over her education that she may not be led astray by false teachings or doctrines, to direct her mind to the Holy Scriptures as expressing the will and authority of God for all humanity, and to direct her feet to the sanctuary, to restrain her from evil associates and habits, and as much as possible to bring her up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Will you endeavor to do so by the help of the Lord? In Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, we read these words. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. What name have you given your child? On behalf of your parents, and your family, and this congregation, I dedicate you, Cora, Talay, Saniseth, to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, now. As I have mentioned to you many times, dedicating our children to God is, uh, is a, an act of a threefold covenant. God, His family, and we the church. We know that God is already at work in her life and will always be faithful to her. The scriptures are so clear about that. And Suli and Kristen and their family have affirmed their desire to do everything in their power to help her know Christ and to nurture her faith. Okay, I'm going to give you that. Won't this be a, a good event? We also have a responsibility as the church, a responsibility to nurture her and to help her to know Christ and to grow in Christ. And sometimes that will happen through structured ways like a Sunday school class or children's church or in the nursery or a ministry. Most of the time it will take place in unstructured ways. Just our willingness to love and engage and embrace her and to help her to know that Christ is in us and she sees that in our lives. So I'm going to invite you to stand as the church in this place and to affirm our commitment to her and to this family. As the church of Jesus Christ, will you, with the help of God, do everything possible to help Cora grow in the nurture and grace of Jesus Christ? Will you love her? Will you be a godly witness to her? And will you help her to know and accept the grace of God in her life? If so, answer, we will. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of children. We read in your word the the great love that you have for children. We see this image of Jesus drawing children to himself when others would want to push them away. We thank you. We thank you especially for Korah. You have brought her into this world, and she is a blessing to her family and to us. We know that you love her, that you are with her, 
and that your desire for her is to know your love and grace in her life. We pray, Father, that she will have a heart turned to you, that everything she does in her life will be about following you and knowing you and serving you, that she may experience the fullness of who you are in her being. We pray, Father, for Suli and Kristen and ask that you would bless them as parents. Help them to know the, your grace upon them as they, as they express your love to her in the best way possible. Give them courage, give them strength, give them everything that they need to be the parents that they desire to be and that you have called them to be. And we pray for Leighton and Callan and Carson as big brothers and ask that you would pour out your grace upon them. Help them as they walk with you to be a godly witness to the little sister. Father, we pray your grace upon this family and ask for your mercy upon them. And we pray for us as a congregation that we will fulfill the vows that we have just taken to be a witness to this little one through the years of her life. Thank you, Lord, for Cora. May your blessing be upon her, her life, every part of her being, all of her days, as we dedicate her to you through the grace of Christ and the power of the Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. We have the opportunity now to give back to God from all the ways in which he's blessed us. We're going to ask the ushers to come and assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings.
Please be seated. There is no right posture in which to pray. We, we can pray standing, sitting, kneeling, laying prostrate. This morning, if you would like to come to the altar rail and kneel and offer your prayers, then I invite you to join me now as we pray together. Father, we have come this morning to worship you, to sing your praises, to declare that you are indeed the God. We come today acknowledging your grace to us and your love for us. And we hear your call to bring before you the burdens, the concerns, the struggles of our lives and our world. This morning we pray for ourselves and for others who are in times of need. In your compassionate power, we pray that you will heal all who suffer, no matter what form the suffering may bring, what form in which it may come. We ask that your Holy Spirit, your healing power, would rest upon Alton and Dick, upon Isla and Bev and Edna, upon Linda and Micah, upon Bill and Crystal and Emily, and for others who are in our hearts and minds today. Father, we pray for all who are grieving And ask for your comforting spirit to be at work in their hearts. We pray that you will restore all who are lost and wandering. Give hope to the hopeless and peace to the restless. We ask that you would strengthen all who are weak. And lift the burden from all who falter under heavy loads that threaten to undo us. And Father, in all of our struggles and all of our difficulties, help us to see you and to live in your peace and your grace and your joy. Father, we pray for our world of pain and distress, of famine and drought, of greed and lust for power, of evil and moral indifference in the many forms in which it comes. We pray that you will bring food to all who are hungry. We pray that you will bring justice to all who are the victims of injustice. We pray, Father, that you will especially watch over all who are suffering, grieving from the outbreak of the Ebola virus. 
Lord, we pray that you will bring an end to this terrible situation. We pray that you will give wisdom to people who are working at finding a cure, a a solution. And we pray, Father, that it will indeed come through your grace. We pray for your church in the midst of very trying circumstances. We ask that you will break our hearts for the needs of so many. We pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters who are facing severe persecution, particularly in Iraq. We ask, Father, that you would protect them. We pray, Father, that you would help them to know that Despite the circumstances, you are with them. We are remembering them. We pray that you would give them courage beyond what most of us have ever needed or experienced. We pray that their witness, their lives, would inspire us in our lives. Father, we pray that you will continue to shine the light of your your peace, your grace, your mercy through your church in this world of great need, pain, struggle. Father, whether the circumstances are about people who live around us or around the world, we pray that you will make us and all of your people beacons of light and hope through the power of your Spirit. We offer our prayers this morning. Through the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, But deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our scripture reading for this morning is from Genesis chapter 27, verses 18 through 41 located on page 26 in your Bible in the pew. Following the reading, children ages 2 to 5 will be dismissed for children's church. Jacob went to his father and said, My father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau, he asked. I am, he replied. Then he said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat 
so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him, and he ate, and he brought some wine, and he drank. Then his father, Isaac, said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's riches, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. After Isaac finished blessing him, and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, please sit up and eat some of my game, so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came, and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless, bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, Haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered Esau, I have made him lord over you, and have made all his relatives his servants. And I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. His father Isaac answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke off your, from off your neck. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand and join us as we sing together.
builds up inside. Bring out the darkness that we try to hide. Help us trust the one before our sins die. And we may lean on you, and in you abide. Come change our hearts. Come change our hearts. Come change. morning. Uh, for those of you who might be visiting or don't know me, my name is Michael Jordan. I'm the dean of the chapel at the college here. And I just want to start this morning by saying thanks. Um, if you remember a few weeks ago, Dr. Steve Dunmire spoke and he said, it was one year ago that we came for the first time to our church. And I realized it, it was actually five years ago this weekend that we first came back to Houghton and took what felt like a huge gamble at the time. And we're so grateful to be here. We're just, anyway, you are such a huge part of our lives here in Houghton. Um, and coming back to this church has meant so very much to me and to our family. And uh, to say a special thanks to Wes and the rest of the pastoral staff um, for allowing me to speak today. I just have respect for your offices uh, as pastors, but also just each of you as people are such 
important figures to me. So thank you um, so much for this chance. Well, uh, Jacob is a more popular name now than it was when I was born. Every year between 1999 and 2012, Jacob was the most popular boy's baby name in America. And last year it dropped to number three. But it's still very popular. It, uh, when I was born, it, like I say, it wasn't quite as popular then. It was number 50. But that's still fairly common when you think about it. Uh, the government started keeping records of all this in 1880. And since that time, the lowest Jacob has been was in 1962, when it was number 368. But even so, it's always been kind of in the realm of normal names for guys. So if your name is Jacob, your name is normal. But nobody ever names their kid Esau. Esau, since 1880, has been in the top thousand four times. In 1902, it was number 964. In 1897, it was number 983. In 1893, it was number 994. And in 1890, it was number 926. That's it. I don't know anybody who was alive the last time Esau was even in the top thousand. And it's never really approached Jacob in terms of popularity. And I'm sure I know why. Because Esau is not depicted in the scripture in an altogether, shall we say, positive way. The first glimpse we get of Esau is not terribly flattering. Genesis 25, 25 describes him at birth like this. The first one to come out, that is Esau, was red. And his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau, which means hairy. Uh, I uh, remember distinctly the birth of each of our kids. And if you're like me... I don't really have, you know, I mean, it's all a blur, but I have kind of one snapshot for each kid that I kind of go to when I need to remember their birth. And for Grace, it's when she was sitting on the scale, hollering. Uh, For Jack, it was seeing his head for the first time about seven and a half minutes after we got to the birth center. That was a nerve-wracking experience. Uh, With Lucy, it was her screaming for the first hour of her life after she was born, and then being really pleasant since then, for those of you that know her. Uh, And for Gabriel, it was him looking at all three of his older siblings when they came to visit. So these are the cozy, sentimental images I have in my mind. And it makes me feel kind of bad, really, for Isaac and Rebecca. You know, I mean, having this baby and Rebecca's there obviously working. And here comes the baby. And she says, what's it look like? What's he look like? And he says, well, he's red. (laughs) And Rebecca says, what do you mean red? You know, and he said, well, uh, you know that garment I have that's made of hair? <laughs> he kind of he looks like that, you know? <laughs> Think, oh, I'm grateful that didn't happen to me, you know? <laughs> it's not a very flattering first picture we get of Esau. And Isaac and Rebecca return the favor, of course, naming him Harry, which is not terribly flattering either. And it doesn't get much more flattering from there. We read that he's a skillful hunter. He's good with a bow and arrow, but he's also as dumb as a bow and arrow. One day he comes in from the field and he's famished and he decides just to trade his birthright, his right as an oldest son, the one thing he had going for him, for a bowl of red stew. And the text calls this despising his birthright and that makes sense because he didn't value the things that were really valuable and instead he just sort of settled for a bowl of stew. And I hope it was a good bowl of stew because it cost him a lot, right? And after that we don't hear a whole lot about Esau until he turns 40, And then he marries not one, but two Hittite women, Judith and Basimath. I guess that's how you pronounce her name. And and we don't know much about them except for the very last sentence of Genesis 26 is this very poignant sentence. And they made life miserable for Isaac and Rebekah. 
sometimes, you know, there's a story behind a sentence, right? And I don't know what the story is there, and Genesis didn't tell us. But it's enough just to say they made life miserable for Isaac and Rebekah. So miserable, in fact, that when it's Jacob's time to get married, <laughs> Rebekah says, I pray Jacob does not marry one of these Hittite women. If he marries one of these Hittite women, she says, what will my life be worth to me? I might as well die. So... <laughs> Esau did not set a good pattern there either. That's misery, and that's Esau's fault. Um, those of you who know me well know I'm a Phillies fan. Have you followed the Phillies this year? They're horrible, right? And the Cubs, the Cubs are always horrible. But at least the Cubs have a certain romance about being horrible, you know? Like, they're lovable losers. and they, right? The Phillies aren't lovable losers. They're just losers, right? And that's Esau. He's just a loser. There's not much redeeming about him. From the start, he has advantages and he squanders them on things that are not really worth it. He squanders them on his appetites for food and his appetites for women. No wonder nobody names their kid Esau. The whole Jacob and Esau story comes to a head in this chapter, which Dan read. And Jacob famously tricks Esau and steals the blessing that properly belongs to Esau. If you don't remember the story, uh, Isaac asks Esau to prepare food that Isaac loves and says, bring it to me and then I'll bless you. And Rebecca overhears this and she doesn't want Esau having anything to do with uh, Isaac's blessing. So she makes an Esau costume for Jacob uh, and essentially makes food for him to bring that's just like the food that Esau would make. And Jacob brings the food in to his father. and, And then Isaac gives Jacob this beautiful blessing. Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, plenty of grain and wine. I know we're Wesleyans, but that's a good thing there for this passage's sake. Let people serve you, he says. Let nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. May your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you. Blessed be everyone who blesses you. And it really is a lovely Lovely blessing, you know. The fatness of the earth, the dew of heaven, the grain and wine, the whole smelling like a field bit is kind of weird, but we can chalk that up to cultural differences. But but the essential part, you know, be Lord over your brothers. Let people serve you. Let nations bow down. All of this makes sense. And it's a lovely blessing. And as, as an oldest child, I think we should go back to giving oldest children that sort of blessing, you know. But then, of course, Esau comes in and he says, here's the food. Here's the food, Dad. And now I'm ready for my blessing. And Isaac says, I just, who, what? I just gave a blessing away. Who was that? I thought it was you. And they both realize at the same time, as if in a movie, Jacob, you know. Ah. And now, if the story had taken place today... I think Isaac would have called Jacob in and explained that this had all been, uh, you know, a a misunderstanding. The the blessing doesn't really count. You can't get a blessing under false pretenses. Uh, This sort of trickery is un-American, I think we'd say today. But, But it didn't take place today and here. It took place years ago and there. And the understanding then was that the blessing was sort of a binding thing. You can't just take it back. And so Esau knows, I'm up a creek, you know, without a paddle. And so he cries, Father, bless me too. Do you have any blessing for me? And Isaac looks at Esau and he he gives him this blessing. See, away from the fatness of the earth shall your home be. And away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live. You shall serve your brother. But when you break loose, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now that's an interesting blessing. 
It's most often seen as a curse, right? Away from the fatness of the earth, away from the dew of heaven. But there's a ray of hope in it. When you break loose, you shall break his yoke from your neck. This is a blessing and not a curse. Much, much later, when the writer of Hebrews is assembling the list of people who have acted by faith, he says, by faith, Isaac invoked blessings for the future on Jacob and Esau. There is a sense in which Isaac envisions a day when Esau has his own path in life. That while he might not have the covenant privileges of Jacob, he will have his own life that has its own purpose and its own meaning. He will serve his brother, just as all peoples must serve the God who makes his covenant with Israel. But he will not be a slave to his brother. He will not have the yoke of slavery on his neck forever. He will have his own way of relating with God and the rest of the world, even if it's not from the privileged perspective that Jacob has. It's a blessing. But in the moment, it does not feel like a blessing to Esau. And he says, my dad's going to die soon. And after he dies and after I've done my period of mourning, I'm going to kill him. And their mom catches wind of it and sends Jacob away. And for the next five chapters in the Bible, the action follows Jacob. He goes to live with his uncle. And on the way there, he has a dream where God renews the covenant with them. He arrives at his uncle's house. He falls in love with Rachel. And he says, I'll work seven years for Rachel. And he does. And then he gets married to who he thinks is Rachel. But it turns out to not be Rachel. And then so he works seven more years to marry Rachel. He ends up having this family with two wives. And then he has children with the wives and the wives' maids. And it's a whole big kind of dysfunctional mess. He has children that carry on the wives' jealousy with each other. Uh, He runs away from his uncle's property where he worked and he steals some things on the way out and the the uncle catches up with them and they have this confrontation where crisis is uh, narrowly averted. And and basically, after Esau and Jacob split up, Jacob's life is like Jerry Springer. It is a tangled mess of lies and deceit and unfaithfulness and dysfunction. Yes, Jacob does have the privilege of carrying on the covenant, But it's almost as if the point of those five chapters is to tell you he doesn't deserve it because his life's a mess. Here he is escaping his uncle and he realizes he has to pass through Esau's territory and he's nervous because, you know, last time he saw Esau, he wanted to kill him. So he he sends messengers ahead to Esau trying to curry favor with him. He, He splits his whole family and all of their possessions up into two Figuring that Esau might kill half of us, but if he kills half of us, he probably will let the other half go because he can't kill both of us at the same time. You know? And then he gets together a huge present to give to Esau, goats and rams and camels and donkeys. And he gets a huge present and he sends that ahead and then he sends the family. He sends his least favorite family members first and then finally at the end his favorite family members. And then to his credit, he runs out ahead of them and he bows down to Esau seven times. He's terrified of what's going to happen. So what happens? Esau, this is in 33, 4. Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Now, I don't know if you have your thinking caps on today, but that sounds a lot less like Esau to me and a lot more like the story of the prodigal son. Do you remember that? The language that Luke uses when he's telling us the story of the prodigal son intentionally echoes the language that's used here for Esau coming after Jacob. 
And often in the story of the prodigal son, we think we have it all lined up. You know, the older son's Israel and the younger son's the people who are outside. And, but here's the, the strange sort of thing. Esau's not acting like either son in that story. Esau's acting like the father. Esau is the one who has been wronged. Jacob has stolen what rightfully belonged to Esau, and then he went and lived a prodigal life. And yet, Esau sees Jacob, and he throws off all propriety, runs to Jacob, hugs him and kisses him and weeps, and he looks around and he sees all the gifts, and he says, what is all, what's all this for? And Jacob says, well, I, I brought it as a gift to you because I thought you were going to kill me. <laughs> you know? And Esau's next line is just amazing. He says, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob says, no, 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 please take it. Please take it. And Esau says, tell you what, why don't we go together? Me and you, like old times. And Jacob says, no, I got a bunch of kids now, so you're going to go faster than us. So don't, you know, you don't have to hang back with us. And Esau says, okay, well, if you've got kids, I got extra servants here, and I'll send the servants with you to help with the kids. What a story. I have enough says Esau. Enough to meet all my needs. Enough to be happy with my place in the world, even if it's not the covenant place that you have, Jacob. Enough that I don't really need or or even really want anything more. Here's the curious thing about this story. Jacob's the guy with the covenant, but his life's a total mess. Decades of deceit have turned Jacob into the kind of person who can only think politically. A man who can never be satisfied with what he has, but seeks more and more. And because of this, he can't see Esau as another person, much less his brother. He can only see him as an obstacle to getting what he wants, something he has to appease. Jacob has the covenant, but he's a mess. Esau got the short end of the stick, but he's the one who can say, I have enough. And he's the one who instantly recognizes Jacob as a brother. You know what? I've always believed that our spiritual gifts and our personalities kind of cut both ways and that our gifts are also our strengths are also our weaknesses. And we see that with Jacob, you know, like sometimes his conniving is a great thing, gets him out of a jam. Sometimes it's a, you know, it's a real problem. Maybe the same could be said of Esau. The same simplicity that made him such a a rube for Jacob (laughs) served him very well and made him able to appreciate what he had. It made him appreciate the life that he had, even though it wasn't someone else's. Well, what's all this mean for us? Well, a few things, I think. I think first, Esau has a lot to teach us about listening to outsiders. Even though Esau is not the covenant brother, Esau is the one who has a much better grip about what's going on in reality. And a much more joyful life. And I think in our day and age... It's easy for traditional-minded Christians to get very easily locked into a culture war where we feel sort of under attack from the culture around us. And when you feel under attack from the culture around us, we divvy the world into us and them so that we know who to trust. And we can trust us who are right, and we can't trust them who are wrong. But we forget sometimes that culture wars have a cost. And the cost of a culture war is often greater than the spoils of victory in a culture war. One of the costs is seeing the world through that lens and not being open to what God may be teaching us through people who are outside of us. 
I mean, isn't that one of the amazing things about God is how God uses all these things to teach us. That God can take the printed page and use ink on a page to teach us something. That, that God can take a silent moment and use it to teach us something. That God can take a sunrise or a sunset or a snowy meadow or a rocky mountain and use the mountain to teach us something. That God can take a, an imperfect sermon and use it to teach us something. How much more then can God use a person? Even someone who's outside the covenant. <laughs> a person made in his image created in his likeness and worth redeeming to teach us something, even if that person is on the wrong side of a culture war. Even if that person doesn't get fully what God has done for us through Jesus. No culture war is worth winning if the cost is us becoming too insensitive to what God is doing around us and outside of us. Please don't hear me wrong. I'm not trying to paper over theological differences. I'm not saying deep down it doesn't matter what you believe because we're all okay. I'm just saying this. I've got a lot to learn about the world, and I'm not in the business of rejecting sources of wisdom. I want to be open and sensitive to what God is teaching me through you, even though you guys are wrong about some stuff. I hope that you're open to what God might be teaching you through me, even though I'm undoubtedly wrong about some stuff. And I want to treat each person I meet as a beloved child of God who has something to teach me. So that's one. Listen to outsiders. I think two is we need to be comfortable being outsiders. As I say, I think Christianity in its traditional form certainly is losing a lot of cultural cachet these days. Christians are popularly understood as being anti-science, power-hungry, greedy. A traditional Christian sexual ethic is being redefined as bigotry before our eyes. We are understood as being 150 years behind the times, except for megachurches, which are understood as being 30 years behind the times. Never mind the evidence to the contrary. We might know that this is not true, but this is how it's understood by the world around us. And Christians generally have one of two responses. One is to fight Traditional Christianity is not bigotry. And here's why, we say, forgetting that no one is listening, right? That's one. And the other tack that sometimes Christians take is to say, not all Christians, right? And by this, we mean, you know, most Christians are closed-minded and bigoted and mean-spirited and greedy and power-hungry, but I personally am not. Now, that's an easy way to establish rapport with the culture, It does have the unfortunate side effect of throwing the rest of the Christians in the world under the bus. Which I'm not sure is what Jesus had in mind when he prayed that we would all be one, even as he and the Father were one. So let me suggest a different answer. Actually, it's not mine, it's Esau's. I have enough. I have enough. If we are indeed losing a place of privilege in our society, we won't win it back by arguing, and we won't win it back by throwing each other under the bus. In fact, I don't think we have to win it back at all. Esau wasn't in a position of privilege, but he learned to thrive there precisely because God had made him an outsider, and he had critical distance from Jacob and proved himself healthier than Jacob. And that kind of distance is something only an outsider has. And I think we need to make Esau's statement our own. I have enough. Even if Western culture finds us out of date and out of touch, I have enough. Even if we lose a place of cultural privilege, I have enough. Even if they won't let me, I don't know, say the Lord's Prayer at graduation, I have enough. 
Even if I'm not well understood by the culture, I have enough. Now, I realize all that might sound a little bit like a lecture. Get used to not having enough. Get used to being outsiders. But I'm not just saying that for our own sort of, I don't know, so you can resolve all this in your head and be okay being an outsider. I'm saying this because I think the world needs outsiders right now. I felt really compelled this week uh, watching the images and the news stories out of Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, In case you're not familiar with it or you don't watch news or whatever, uh, an unarmed young African-American man named Michael Brown was shot and killed by police. And most reports are that he was shot in the back with his hands raised in the air, saying, hands up, don't shoot. Now, I don't know how you feel when you hear reports like that. If you're anything like me, you feel mostly confused. I mean, people my age tend to be very distrustful of the media because we know the media distorts stories to build a brand for themselves. So often we just throw our hands up in the air and say, I don't know. I don't know what the truth is. And that's fine sometimes. I mean, I don't know what the best restaurant to go to is and the media tells me that and I don't know. And I don't know what's going to happen to Brad and Angelina. And that's okay not to know. But But in this case, a young man's dead in the African-American community in St. Louis and around our country, a disproportionately Christian group of people, a group of people who've had a great deal of influence on me personally, are saying, I can't get a fair shake in our country. They're saying they're unfairly targeted by police, that they're profiled, that they're distrusted simply for the color of their skin. They're saying simply the color of their skin makes them outsiders. And many of them are accusing white Christians, people like me and many of you, of being silent, of not calling a spade a spade, of not calling injustice injustice, of not calling evil evil. And I hear that. And I know when I hear that, that it's not okay for me to just say, I don't know. But here's the thing. I don't know. I don't know what to say. I mean, I'm aware that there's a community that's hurting. I'm aware that there's a grieving mother who worked so hard to get her son through school and was about to send him off to college who can't do that. I'm also aware that the officer who did the shooting may himself be a decent person who made a terrible decision in the heat of a moment. And that moment is at the very least going to make him a pariah forever. And I'm very much aware of what I don't know, thanks academic community like you, where I want to learn all the facts before I say anything. So I don't know. But... I might know better if I were an outsider. If something about me that I understand as good and beautiful was understood as ugly by our culture at large, I might understand better what to say to outsiders and how to listen to outsiders. You see, this is a gospel thing, right? God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God himself becomes an outsider for the sake of ministering to the outsider so that in the end, no one has to be an outsider. And so maybe we need to look at our cultural marginalization as a tool in the hands of God. It pushes us outside and it helps us to love real outsiders in a deeper, more genuine way. I hate, hate the nagging feeling that people who understand human sexuality like I do are being called bigots. I hate it. It makes me feel like I'm not at home here. It makes me feel like an outsider. 
But if experiencing that tiny little pain, that nagging inconvenience really, helps me to love those who are truly marginalized in our culture better, then I want to feel that pain. Maybe the reason white American evangelicals have felt so helpless to say anything about Ferguson, about racism in general, is that we just don't know what it's like to be outsiders. Maybe we're about to learn. Maybe that's a good thing for the kingdom and for us. Well, enough. It's already been a long sermon. You all have things to do. But I'll close by saying this. I'm still not sure I'd name my kid Esau. But if my kids ever know any outsiders, I hope they listen to them. I hope they know that outsiders have wisdom that insiders can miss. And further, if my kid is ever going to be an outsider, and all kids are, I hope they deal with it like Esau. I hope if my kid doesn't get the lead in the school play, if they don't get to be first picked for soccer, if they don't get the top scholarship in college, if they don't get the job they dream of getting, if they don't have the perfect marriage or the perfect body, if they're ever an outsider, I hope they remember, I have enough. Because as John himself says, this is the kind of love God has for us, that we should be called children of God. And this is what we are. And that is enough. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for being with us and for being sufficient for us. God, each of us knows the pain of feeling like an outsider, some more keenly than others here. We pray, God, that you would help us each to be sensitive uh, to the outsiders in our midst. Help us to hear what you're teaching us through them. And help us to not be afraid to become an outsider. We pray this through Christ's strong name. Amen. Amanda, I know I'm getting these people out of here later. Are you gonna, still going to play a song? You're still going to lead a song for us? No, it's all good. I just know it's late. I just feel bad for these people, you know? Oh, they'll, they'll sing. They'll sing. They'll sing. All right. Stay, let's stay. Please stand and join us.
whether, like Jacob, you get to be the guy in the center of the action, or whether, like Esau, you get to be the guy on the fringes. I pray that you know that you have enough wherever you are, that his grace is sufficient for you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.